I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, writers. Welcome to Free MFA. I'm your host, Torre. And the year I spent at Columbia University's graduate creative writing program had a profound impact on me as a writer and helped launch me into a 25-year career. I've written eight books, and I love being a writer. I love my writing time. I protect it fiercely. We talked about that in episode one. And I love writers. They are my tribe. I have a rule. Anything anyone says around me is fair game for me to grab and use in my work unless that person is a writer. I'd never steal from another writer. But stealing from a civilian is like research. I want to use this show to talk to writers about writing and pass on some things I've learned in Columbia's MFA program and in the 25 years since. I'm here to give you a free MFA and to liberate the information disseminated in cloistered MFA programs that cost tons. You definitely don't have to go to an MFA to become a writer, but some of the things they teach can help. I'm dividing this class up into four small sections, like four little classes. First, a bit of motivation, then a look into a legendary piece of writing, which is one of the most important teaching tools in an MFA program. Then a tip from a great book about writing, like advice from a visiting author. And fourth, and finally, a sentence I love because it all begins with great sentences. The core element of the MFA that's really effective and can't be replicated via a podcast is the crit, where teachers and students take your piece and rip it to shreds and give you tons of notes on how to make it better. It can be really hard, but it can be really, really helpful. And when you're in a program, you make friends and you know who you can trust to give you tough but loving critique. Every writer needs a friend like that. They are hard to find, I know, but they're crucial to your development as a writer. If you want me to be that tough but loving reader you can trust, email me at bookcoachatore.com or go to my site, torebookcoach.com, and we can talk about it. Okay, let's dig in. I want to start with an idea. What would you write if you thought no one would ever read it? Would you write things that you wouldn't want to publish? What if I told you those things that you're afraid to publish, that might be your most compelling stuff? You know that saying, dance like no one's watching? Like, be free and be your truest self? you got to write like no one is reading and then publish that. We all have masks that we wear to keep our true feelings away from others to protect ourselves. You could be dying inside, but when people ask you how you are, you say, I'm fine, because you're wearing that mask. That's fine when you're walking around Earth, but when you get to your writing time, you got to take off the mask and do open heart surgery on yourself with no anesthetic. You got to keep it real. You got to give them the real you without a concern for what will people think of me? Let me give you an example. Years ago, Rolling Stone sent me to do a story on D'Angelo as he toured to promote his second album, Voodoo. I'd already interviewed him about his first album, and Questlove was the band leader, and I'd known him for a long time, so I was really familiar to this crew. 
Usually the writer gets booted out of the dressing room long before the show starts, but in this case, since they knew me, they let me stick around. So I was in this dry, antiseptic, backstage, makeshift green room with a bunch of amazing musicians, and I happened to be standing there talking to D'Angelo when Questlove said, okay, let's get into the prayer. The musicians circled up, and as a journalist, I was always a joiner who wanted, you know, to get in on the happenings of the artists. So I joined the circle. I grabbed hands with D'Angelo on my left and another musician on my right, and I was in the prayer with them. And as someone talked to God and asked for a safe and joyful show, I was transfixed by the feeling of D'Angelo's hand in mine. As a journalist, he had thick, strong, calloused fingers that were interlaced with mine in a vice grip. When we let go, my hand hurt a little. So later, when I sat down to write, I thought, wait a minute. D'Angelo is widely thought of as a sex symbol. He's a dream boyfriend for many women. Many would kill for the chance to hold his hand, and I had done just that. I could describe holding his hand in a way that could make the reader feel like they had held his hand. That would be memorable. That was the best possible intro that I could write. So I wrote a detailed description of what it feels like to hold hands with D'Angelo. I wrote, D'Angelo is holding your hand. His thick, muscular fingers are interlocked with yours. You can feel the baby oil that he rubs on his skin before each show. You can feel the pressure of his vice squeeze. You can feel his rings cutting into your skin. It hurts. It hurts good, though. That was my opening. And I said, yeah, that's going to bring the reader into the story in a way that speaks to their experience of D'Angelo. It's a series of details that probably no other writer will ever be able to acquire. Now, by that point in my career, I was already writing like no one was reading, so my mind began putting together what this opening anecdote could sound like. But I could still hear another voice in the distance of my mind, this voice of doubt, that said, what if this makes people think you're gay? Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being gay, but no one likes to be misdefined, and I'm not gay. But in the past, I've had people whisper behind my back that I was, so I was sensitive to this. But I can't write and also worry about what people might misperceive about me. I write to make people feel something. And if I don't take a risk, then they won't. It was a memorable opening few lines because I was willing to go there and write like no one was reading and not care what people might think about me, but focus on the writing. Okay, part two. Writing schools love walking you through the intricacies of a great piece of writing. It's one of the best tools they have for making you better. So let's go through the opening two graphs in James Baldwin's incredible Notes of a Native Son. He's definitely writing like no one's reading, keeping it real, dispensing with masks, and taking us inside the pain and difficulty of being himself and the impossibility of dealing with his father. Writing real stuff about your family is hard because you know other family members will say, hey, why did you tell the whole world that? One early life lesson for many of us is that the world of home is private and not to be shared with outsiders. So breaking that code can be hard. But if you want to write memoir, you might have to be willing to break that code. And to do that, you might have to write while pretending that no one will read it. But almost inevitably you will write more compellingly if you're not hiding your real truth. 
Baldwin knew that. He was fearlessly, relentlessly real. There's no mask with Baldwin. He begins, quote, On the 29th of July, in 1943, my father died. On the same day, a few hours later, his last child was born. Over a month before this, while all our energies were concentrated in waiting for these events, there had been, in Detroit, one of the bloodiest race riots of the century. A few hours after my father's funeral, while he lay in state in the Undertaker's Chapel, a race riot broke out in Harlem. On the morning of the 3rd of August, we drove my father to the graveyard through a wilderness of smashed plate glass. The day of my father's funeral had also been my 19th birthday. As we drove him to the graveyard, the spoils of injustice, anarchy, discontent, and hatred were all around us. It seemed to me that God himself had devised to mark my father's end the most sustained and brutally dissonant of codas. And it seemed to me, too, that the violence which rose all about us as my father left the world had been devised as a corrective for the pride of his eldest son. I had declined to believe in that apocalypse which had been central to my father's vision. Very well, life seemed to be saying, here is something that will certainly pass for an apocalypse until the real thing comes along. I had inclined to be contemptuous of my father for the conditions of his life, for the conditions of our lives. When his life had ended, I began to wonder about that life and also, in a new way, to be apprehensive about my own. Baldwin starts with a series of straightforward declarative facts delivered emotionlessly and piled one on top of the other to show that he's at an insane moment in his life. His father has died, another sibling has just been born, he's just trying to become a man, and the black community is exploding into riots all over the place. The craziness of his nuclear family is linked to the explosions of the race riots by that great last sentence in the first graph. We drove my father to the graveyard through a wilderness of smashed plate glass. I can see that procession, and I can hear it crunching over bits of shattered glass. But Baldwin's tone here in the first graph is even and calm. He doesn't give us any emotional words, even though we know these are all highly triggering events. But in the second graph, he opens up and rises in emotionality, rising up even to the feelings of God. Baldwin said it seemed to him that God had devised this brutally dissonant coda. I love that group of words. A brutally dissonant coda, an ending mixing two sides that are in violent disagreement. He's pulled by two competing forces. And for what? Baldwin says the violence that rose up as his father left the world was a corrective for the pride that young Baldwin felt. And then this, the sentence that truly brings together all three strands, the meaning of his father's death, the black anger all around them, and James's struggle with who he's becoming. I had declined, Baldwin writes, to believe in that apocalypse that was central to my father's vision. I dismissed the main idea of his life, so God stepped in. Very well, life seemed to be saying, and I love him giving voice to life itself. Very well, here is something that will pass for an apocalypse until the real thing comes along, because it is real. And damn it, if all that wouldn't seem apocalyptic to a 19-year-old. The apocalypse is behind him, and now it's time for rebirth. Time to figure out who he is going to become. 
I love the shape of this part, how he starts slow and unemotionally and adds emotion until he concedes that, yes, there's something massive and decisive happening in his life. It's an apocalypse. And after this moment, he will never be the same. Throughout this piece, Baldwin speaks courageously and honestly about himself, putting himself in the middle of two worlds, that of his family at home and that of the African-American community at large. He speaks with moral force, and that's something Anne Lamott talks about in her legendary book about writing, Bird by Bird. You need to put yourself at the center of your work, you and what you believe to be true and right. The core ethical concepts in which you most passionately believe are the language in which you are writing. Telling the truth is your job. If your deepest beliefs drive your writing, they will not only keep your work from being contrived, but will help you discover what drives your characters. Yes, absolutely. You need to believe in something and infuse your writing with that belief. But I'm not talking about a political idea. I'm talking about a moral belief, a human ideal you can fight for. Let your higher self come out when you write. That could give the work more heft and depth and importance. Look at how Baldwin talks about not believing in the concept of apocalypse until life shows him one. That's a deep moral issue that has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with far deeper matters of the soul. When you can get down to that level, you can really give people writing that is worth reading. Lamott says, There is no point gathering an audience and demanding its attention unless you have something to say that is important and constructive. Amen. Since I started off celebrating Baldwin, I have to take my last sentence from him because he wrote beautiful operatic sentences with rhythm and force that were dripping with honesty. Later on in Notes of a Native Son, Baldwin describes his father, giving us a view of what he was like at home, a devastating little portrait. Quote, He had always been so strange and had lived like a prophet in such unimaginably close communion with the Lord that his long silences, which were punctuated by moans and hallelujahs and snatches of old songs while he sat in the living room window, never seemed odd to us. I love how he begins and ends with the notion of his father's weirdness and shows it to us in the long middle. I love the rhythm he creates in the middle of the sentence when he says, in such unimaginably, and I can hear him rolling his eyes, unimaginably close communion with the Lord, and then lets us almost hear his father's long silences be punctured by two words that are onomatopoetic, moan, which sounds like a moan, and hallelujah, which sounds ecstatic. I love visual writing. Put interesting pictures in people's heads, and they'll never forget them. Okay, that's class for today. Thanks so much for listening to Free MFA. Please leave a review and tell the writers in your life about the show. And if you want to work with me on your book, email me at bookcoachattore.com or go to my site, torebookcoach.com, and we can talk about working together to make your book great. And don't miss my other podcast, Torre Show, where I interview people about success. Thanks for listening to Free MFA. We'll be back next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.